Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Come. Come in and know that you are welcome. Welcome to the Nook, to the fates and the offerings of the evening, and welcome to Tales to Terrify. I know you can't see my face tonight, or ever, for the dark and the distance between us, but I am Lawrence Santoro, and this is our 98th gathering here in the shadows. Unwrap, grab a goodie or two, pour a warming drink, and find a chum. Your eyes will grow accustomed to the night. Ninety-eight weeks. Two more, and we're into triple digits. Four more, and our third year begins. Last week, our producer, Tony C. Smith, suggested that we do something exciting for the 100th show. I think we do exciting things every week, but what do you think? What do you suggest? Stop by our Facebook page, leave your thoughts, and of course, remember, just two weeks after our hundredth, we'll pass our second anniversary. So, what to do, what to do. Lest you believe there to be prescience at work here, and of course, let me not disabuse you of the belief. However, last Friday, we posted our latest quasi-monthly piece of art on the homepage, TalesToTerrify.com. 
It was a painting by Chicago artist Elsa Munoz, and it was called Tornado 17. Now, I want you to understand, this is not the time of year for tornadoes. The season varies. In the American South, tornadoes typically flourish in late winter, early spring. Here in the upper Midwest, we get our twisters during spring and summer, roughly April through June. And that's about the season in what's known as Tornado Alley. So, while the season had pretty much passed, I chose Elsa's painting of a tornado simply because, well, it just had a dark and a dangerous look to it. Then, last Sunday, what the U.S. Weather Service called scores of tornadoes, more than 80 of them, in fact, were birthed from a wide, fast-moving storm system that swept across our part of the continent. Sylvia Schultz, who does the Lights Out segment here in the Nook, she lives in Pekin, Illinois. She and her husband are fine, but a tornado did touch down a few blocks from their place in the city of Washington, Illinois, just north and east of them by, well, less than 20 miles, was hit hard. As I say, this is not the season. Still, we, we, we live in interesting times, and whether you believe that recent emerging conditions are just a naturally pernicious swing of the pendulum of providence, or whether you know it to be humankind's hand mucking up the environment to benefit the 24-7 news cycle we now live in, we must face the fact climate and its more personal dark horsemen, the weather, will be the monster of the 21st century. Well, best wishes and better days to all who've suffered. Back this month and still gathering terrific reviews for his collection, Things Fall Through, from Crystal Lake Publishing, is Professor Kevin Lucia with another episode of Horror 101. Kevin? After what I had heard from Mr. Bentley and from other people once I had arrived about the late Mrs. Drablow, I had had all sorts of wild imaginings about the state of her house. I had expected it, perhaps, to be a shrine to the memory of a pastime, or to her youth, or to the memory of her husband of so short a time, like the house of poor Miss Havisham, or else to be simply cobwebbed and filthy, with old newspapers, rags and rubbish piled in corners, all the debris of a recluse, together with some half-starved cat or dog. But, as I began to wander in and out of morning room and drawing room, sitting room and dining room and study, I found nothing so dramatic or unpleasant, though it is true that there was that faintly damp, musty, sweet-sour smell everywhere about that will arise in any house that has been shut up for some time, and particularly in one which, surrounded as this was on all sides by marsh and estuary, was bound to be a permanently damp. The furniture was old-fashioned but good, solid, dark, and had been reasonably well looked after, though many of the rooms had clearly not been much used or perhaps even entered for years. Only a small parlor, at the far end of a narrow corridor off the hall, seemed to have been much lived in. Probably it had been here that Mrs. Drablow had passed most of her days. 
In every room were glass-fronted cases full of books, and besides the books, there were heavy pictures, dull portraits, and old paintings of old houses. Indeed, it was all curiously impersonal. The furniture, the decoration, the ornaments, assembled by someone with little individuality or taste. A dull, rather gloomy, and rather unwelcoming home. It was remarkable and extraordinary in only one respect. Its situation, from every window, and they were tall and wide in each room, there was a view of one aspect or other, of the marshes and the estuary and the immensity of the sky. All color had been drained and blotted out of them now. The sun had set, the light was poor, there was no movement at all, no undulation of the water, and I could scarcely make out any break between land and water and sky. All was gray. I managed to let up every blind and to open one or two of the windows. The wind had dropped altogether. There was no sound save the faintest, softest suck of water as the tide crept in. How one old woman had endured day after day, night after night, of isolation in this house, let alone for so many years, I could not conceive. I should have gone mad. Indeed, I intended to work every possible minute without a pause to get through the papers and be done. And yet there was a strange fascination in looking out over the wild, wide marshes, for they had an uncanny beauty, even now in the gray twilight. There was nothing whatsoever to see for mile after mile, and yet I could not take my eyes away. But for today I had had enough. Enough of solitude and no sound save the water and the moaning wind and the melancholy calls of the birds. Enough of monotonous grayness. Enough of this gloomy old house. And, as it would be at least another hour before Keckwick would return to the pony trap, I decided that I would stir myself and put the place behind me. A good brisk walk would shake me up and put me in a good heart and work up my appetite, and if I stepped out well, I would arrive back in Crith and Grifford in time to save Keckwick from returning out. Even if I did not, I should meet him on the way. The causeway was still visible, and the roads back were straight, and I could not possibly lose myself. So thinking, I closed up the windows and drew the blinds again, and left Ela Marsh House to itself in the declining November light. Welcome to Horror 101 here at Tales of Terrify. I, again, am your host, Kevin Lucia, and that reading was from one of this month's selections, The Woman in Black by Susan Hill. As for this episode, we're going to focus on The Return of the Gothic, and we're going to look at several books that have taken the Gothic trope and twisted it a little bit, made it their own. It's interesting that like the horror genre itself, because the gothic genre and the horror genre kind of are cousins or bedfellows, you could say the horror genre arose out of the gothic genre, it's interesting that like the horror genre, the gothic genre, the gothic tradition, is probably one of our most pervasive literary sensibilities. You know, it just doesn't go away. When you think of all the things that make up the gothic tradition or a gothic story, Things like forbidden knowledge, divine terror, family and town secrets, ancient curses, either curses on a person or curses on a family line or curses on a house or a bit of property, even curses on a town. Tainted houses, haunted houses, isolated and cut off settings, oppressive atmospheres, either an oppressive atmosphere created by a house or a setting or sometimes an oppressive atmosphere that's created by characters you know exiled mad relatives all these things uh, this got these elements of the gothic tradition can be endlessly reinterpreted yet all these things can if they're done well can still remain very prevalent to uh, to the human experience so i think like the horror genre the gothic tale is one that won't ever go away 
you know, it has, it has become embedded in our kind of our collective psyche, if you will, if that doesn't sound too armchair psychologist. And it's a, it's a story that can keep coming back over and over again. So as we progress through the house motif of the horror genre until we reach our end, whenever that will be, the gothic is going to keep popping back up. You know, even further down, there's the fearful symmetry of the House of Leaves, the House of Charlotte Markham. You know, those are very modern examples of that gothic tradition, which we're going to get to those eventually, reworked and retooled. And it's just something that it keeps popping back up. This month's offerings include two interpretations of that Gothic tradition. The Brownstone Gothic by Elizabeth Schenken and The Hawkline Monster, a Gothic Western by Richard Brodigan, which I want to say right now, before we even get into it, may be one of the oddest, strangest stories that I've ever read. Our third selection, rounding things out, is a more classic entry from what I read at the beginning of the podcast, The Woman in Black by Susan Hill. And it's important to note, for those of us who have seen the movie, The Woman in Black, the book is markedly different. I would have to say that both are pretty successful in their own right. The Woman in Black is a successful, satisfying story, the novel. The movie, as an interpretation of it, can really stand on its own, in my opinion, as a successful and entertaining movie. So it's not one of those cases, I think, where the movie ruined the book or the movie was inferior to the book. It's one of those rare cases where I think both exist separately as their own entities and are fairly successful as their own stories. This month's first selection, Brownstone Gothic by Elizabeth Schenken, is a pretty simple, straightforward, classic story. We would label this as a natural Gothic, which is one of the reasons why I picked this up. Although I must confess, I was at our local library used book sale, and I simply saw it. And again, I become fascinated whenever I see books that come from a line, you know, devoted to that genre. You know, a paperback library gothic. I think I, I did an, a similar book called The Devil's Mansion. It was also a libra- paperback library gothic. So I saw this, and I'm like, oh, I've got to pick that up. And it's got your classic, even if we look at the cover, it's got your classic beleaguered, menaced woman on the cover looking over her shoulder and there's this big gloomy building behind her with a shadowy figure in the window. You could probably just take this cover and and, and Xerox it over dozens of different books. And even blurb on the front from Los Angeles Herald Express. Jenny Russell fights for her fortune, her sanity, and her life in a mansion of menace. So, it was a fairly straightforward read. Uh, It takes place, and this is interesting, again, I think why I'm going to keep coming back to the Gothic tradition is that even as contemporary novels are written, they continue to reimagine that Gothic past. This, This book was written in 1961. It was reprinted several times, but it still goes back to 1871. So kind of the same thing with Woman in Black. That was written in the 80s, and we go back to that near turn of the century time. And there must be something you know, about that you know, time period that just lends itself well to a gothic tale. But Brownstone Gothic is a fairly straightforward story. In it, woman Hilda Thorne and her seven-year-old son come to live at a Fifth Avenue mansion, Russell House. It's a brownstone. Um, they have come there. Uh, their, their extended family, her husband has died. 
which again, classic Gothic motif, dislocation, you know, lost, they have to move to a new home, they've lost everything, and now they're in a strange medicine place. And she has been charged as a kind of a care maid, I don't know if I say nursemaid, but uh, to young Jenny Russell who is going to inherit the fortune of the Russell family someday. So she is obviously there, the caretaker to watch after her. The story is very simple, very straightforward. As soon as Hilda Thorne arrives at Russell House, all these strange things happen to Jenny Russell, which in, in that aspect, it makes it a kind of a weird book. Not a weird book, but I guess, but uh, in a lot of the Gothic stories, we have someone who comes to the house who is this governess or handmaiden type person, and a lot of things will happen to her, or I guess you could say this is almost a, a twist on Turn of the Screw, because in Turn of the Screw, our governess comes and she's got the two children she's looking after, and things happen to those children, and she kind of just stands there as a passive observer. So we have a very similar thing here in Brownstone Gothic, where not a lot of things happen to Hilda Thorne herself, but throughout the story, accidents, mishaps, sickness uh, continues happening to Jenny Russell. Also, hinging on that gothic tradition, Jenny has fits of madness, or fits of rage, or where she kind of goes crazy or loses it, maybe like seizures, uh, and she's very, very ill throughout the whole book. Of course, in the background, we have a man who's romancing Jenny Russell, who's pretty sketchy. You know, it turns out he's running a game and also romancing one of the maids there in the house to kind of get an inside track on Jenny Russell because he's only interested in her fortune. And we also have somebody part of the house and the financial, you know, workings of the house who's giving out secrets, books and things like that. And it comes to find out at the end of the story, someone has been slipping some medication into Jenny Russell's food and her drink for the whole story, which has been causing the seizures. And there's been a big scam to expose the Russells and, and blackmail them because, as it turns out, a lot of their fortune is gone. And everything wraps up rather neatly, rather nicely. And again, it's just interesting to see that this is a type of story especially in the 60s, that it, and I found I keep finding these things all the time. I actually found that I'll post it on the Horror 101 Facebook page. There's an entire forum devoted to the gothics. It's called American Romance, uh, Gothic Romances Forum or something like that. And I just always find it very interesting when you see a whole line of books dedicated to one motif or one genre. So it's a fairly simple, fairly easy read, fairly straightforward. What's funny, again, is that the cover... And all the blurbs, you know, in the back of the the back of the book, it says in big red letters, "Curse this house," and the millions of readers who thrill to a really authentic gothic will delight in a spine tingling novel of a beautiful heiress threatened by hate, violence, and danger in a sinister New York townhouse. And it's ironic that that's the blurb, and really what it just turns out to be is a story about Hilda Thorne. Uh, not even really about Jenny Russell, hardly at all. It, it's ironic. Jenny Russell is pitched as like one of the main characters who's being menaced by this terrible threat. And really, the story is about Hilda Russell, and, or Hilda Thorne, moving to this house with her son. You know, and of course, there's a single kind of ravishing middle-aged man who works for the house, who Hilda Thorne ends up hooking up with. Um, so it's an interesting little story. I can't really say it does anything um, extraordinary with the Gothic tale, but it's just interesting to me whenever I see this this trope continually played out, you know, down the line. Our next offering for this month is The Woman in Black by Susan Hill. And for folks who have seen the movie, I highly recommend the book. 
we're probably familiar with the story now, or at least parts of the story if we've seen the movie, because our main character, Arthur Kipps, works for a law firm in London, and he's tasked by his law firm to go out to Eel Marsh House in Criffin Githard, a really remote region of the country, to close the affairs of the house and get all the papers in order and bring them back to London. And of course, there is this ghost that haunts the property, the woman in black. And again, I, I feel a little, not awkward, but I'm sure we've all seen the movie, or a lot of us have seen the movie. So we know the story of how uh, Jeanette Humphrey's child was taken away and how she had to live in that house and be near her son and not be able to talk to him every single day, according to the movie anyway, and how when the son died in a tragic accident in the marshes outside the house, she went mad and, according to the movie, hung herself. And now, because she died in such a fit of rage, her ghost haunts the property. And any time anyone sees the ghost, then a child dies. And there you have the kind of the synopsis of the movie. Or Daniel Radcliffe, which I must say, Daniel Radcliffe is a nice turn, a nice non-Harry Potter turn, I thought. Well, I think it was a good movie to set him apart from Harry Potter. He spends the whole you know movie out there, and it's a wonderful film, especially if you saw it in the in the big on the big screen. Some people have kind of maligned the film; they compared it to the BBC production, which I've never seen. I personally thought the film was very effective in the theater. Now, the book, however, is very different. Same basic plot. They arrange things a lot differently, which makes sense. In a movie, you need to keep people in the seats. So the whole thing about the child murders and things like that in the book, that's not revealed until the very end. So there are no children dying throughout the novel. And that, that's, that makes sense, I think, to tweak that in the movie, because you've got to keep people thrilled on the edge of their seats. And the same basic plot, with the exception that The Woman in Black starts off with a very classic ghost story trope. Arthur Kipps is alive. In the movie, he dies. Arthur Kipps is alive, and he's 60 years old, resting around the fire with his family, and everyone's indulging in a classic British Christmas Eve tradition. They're sharing ghost stories. And all the his uh, stepchildren are sharing ghost stories. He cannot bring himself to share his story because it's too harrowing, but after several days, this leads him to, in very classic fashion, sit down and write out his story so his family can understand what happened to him when he went to Eel Marsh House. So that's one major difference between the movie and the book. The second major difference is in the movie, he was married, his wife died, and he was left with a child. Which, again, it was a nice setup. He's a struggling father who wants to provide for his son, so he's forced to stay there. You know, Moshart, he can't go back. He's going to lose his job. In the book, there's no such setup. He's engaged. His uh, fiancée is waiting for him back in London, and he's simply out there alone. One thing about this book that's very interesting, again, when you're thinking about the, the difference between a movie and a book, the book, for the most part, is more concerned about how the house is a very sad place the nursery in particular, and that there's really more an overwhelming sense of sadness that Arthur Kipps encounters, again, a very classic Gothic trope, in Eel Marsh House. This, this deep abiding sadness that Jeanette Humphreys must have felt after her son died, because also different movie, Jeanette Humphreys hangs herself in a fit of rage. In the book, 30 years later, after her son dies, she finally dies of a heart attack, succumbing to this like wasting disease that sucked her vitality away all these years. So we just the book moves at a much more leisurely pace 
And there's a very faint air of menace, a very subtle air of, of gloom and melancholy and depression. And we don't have, as effective as they were in the movie, we don't have these scenes where Arthur Kipps is, is running around, um, you know, you know, pulse-pounding terror with lights flip, flicking off and doors opening and shutting. And we do have the rocker. But more so, he's simply overcome by this sense. Occasionally, there's a, this sense of dread and menace from the woman in black herself. But for the most part, he is overcome with this sense of sadness. You know, that the woman in the black um, have felt over the death of her son. Another noticeable difference is in the movie... We get the idea that Jeanette Humphreys was locked away in Neil Marsh house and was not able to contact her son. Almost in a more wrenching turn, in the book, Jeanette Humphreys has to give up her son to her sister. But then her sister allows her to come on as a nursemaid without ever revealing her identity. So that almost, in a sense, when you let that play in your head a little bit, that's where The Woman in Black, the novel, succeeds. Is it easy to read? It's quick. You read it, you read it, and you put it down. But then you sit and you kind of let the story play in your head a little bit. It's almost more wrenching when you think of Jeanette Humphreys having to see her son every single day under the guise of a governess, but not being able to tell her, tell him, I am your son, or I am your, I am your mother. You know, in the movie, we get the idea that she's kind of like your classic mad relative in the attic who's locked away and she's not able to actually see him. In the book, it's almost a little worse in a subtle way. She gets to see him every day. She gets to care for him and love him, but is never able to say, I am your mother. So that in some ways is almost worse. The Woman of Black is through and through. The novel may not necessarily be an outstandingly original novel, but it is a classic gothic novel. It has all those things there with the interesting twist that so many of the classic novels have a woman alone in a house menaced by some malevolent spirit. I have no idea if this is intentional, but obviously, again, this is written in 1984, casting an eye back to the turn of the century. The major difference that I find interesting is that the uh, it's kind of flipped a little bit. Now we have a male menaced in a house by a female spirit, ironically, uh, versus like the turn of the screw. So it's kind of in some ways, I don't want to say polar opposite, but it's kind of a flipping of, of the motifs. And in the turn of the screw, we have a female who's menaced by... Also, there's also a female spirit there too, but for the most part, it's the male spirit of that, the, the, the man who used to cavort with the old caretaker that really menaces her and the boy. But in this, is a flip. We have a male character who's menaced by a female spirit. In any case... Woman in Black stands as a nice testimony of the gothic tale, uh, very classic in all respects. Our final book in this month's podcast is somewhat of an odd book called The Hawkline Monster, a Gothic Western by Richard Brodigan. And again, I have to confess that I was at my favorite used bookstore when I picked up this book and I looked at the back and I read the back and the back read, The Time is 1902, The Setting, Eastern Oregon. The action begins when Magic Child, a 15-year-old Indian girl of surprising sophistication and accomplishment, a.k.a. she sleeps with men throughout the whole book, wanders into the wrong whorehouse looking for the right men, the men who will kill the monster that lives in the ice caves underneath the basement of Miss Hawkline's cold yellow house. So I thought, well, this is interesting. It's, it's kind of a nice little twist. We've got a Victorian house that's out in the desert sort of spewing this, all this 
clouds of smoke from its chimney and the horses in the distance and gothic western. So I had to pick it up. And it's an interesting story. I do have to say I was very pleased when I did my research on Richard Brodigan to find the words satirist and parody uh, after his name because that makes the novel make a whole lot more sense. And we won't feature a lot of these in Horror 101 because we don't want to get too far away from our original mission, Horror 101. But again, I think it shows the, the power and influence of a genre when parodies start to pop up because, you know, that's, that's when we're, we're kind of poking fun at something. That, and to me, that means something has an immense sort of power, and it's a story we've heard very often for us to start making fun of it. But in The Hawkline Monster, we have two um, morally ambiguous gunmen, Greer and Cameron. They're hired killers. And they've been hired to come to Hawkline House out in Oregon to kill a monster that lives beneath the caves. Now, in some ways, this story is definitely, even though it's set in the Western, we have two Western gunmen and killers, it certainly is a throwback to the old Gothic uh, stories, all the way back to the Castle of Tronto, because you can't really read this book and take it seriously. Uh, even though it does have all the Gothic trappings, it's told in a very tongue-in-cheek style. It's actually very easy to read. I'm not going to lie. I read this in two days. So I was, I was a little confused reading it, because it's so typecast, it's so cliched. The women do nothing but want to run around and sleep with like the women are like so enthralled by these two gunmen, they just want to sleep with them like, repeatedly. And I'm like, but the prose is pretty accomplished. The dialogue's pretty pretty tight. The prose is tight. And this is a very. But then when again, I looked up Richard Brodigan's background, satirist parody. So it's an interesting, you know, twist on the west, on the western and the gothic. You know, so they're brought up to this house, Miss Hawkline, and it's interesting because we have all the same gothic um, traits. It's a secretive house. There's a deep family secret because the Hawkline's father was a professor who was conducting these experiments in his basement. So let's throw in a little bit of Frankenstein there as well. And his experiment got out of his control and ate him. And now there's this malevolent spirit that's floating around the house playing tricks on everyone. And also, too, the Hawkline sisters are very strange. Magic Child turns out to be the sister of Miss Hawkline. And as soon as Magic Child gets back to Hawkline House, she immediately sheds her Indian girl trappings, and suddenly Miss Hawkline and Miss Hawkline are the same, and you can't distinguish them. So there's some strangeness in there. And again, we're kind of playing off the motif of something under the house, this monster that exists in the ice caves underneath the house. Um, as it turns out, it's not really a monster. It is a malevolent spirit, which is not really all that malevolent. You know, it delights in, like, playing tricks on the Hawkline sisters, like forget things, distracting them, moving things around. Uh, in one scene when they're about ready to go downstairs and take care of the monster, as they've been hired to, the, the Miss Hawkline twins have this uh, uncontrollable urge to, to indulge in carnal delights. So we dissuade our two gummen through doing that. And it's a very tongue-in-cheek story. And I think, again, what's interesting about the story, anyone who appreciates the gothic tale, for example, if you're looking for a real serious story, the Hawkline monster is not necessarily it. 
And I do have to confess to being swayed by curiosity when I was at the bookstore this weekend. But if you're really a fan of the gothic tale, this is kind of an interesting, also weird Western in its own way, take upon it. Um, And if you're not going to be offended by a clearly misogynistic uh, narrative, which again, I felt a lot better about the narrative when I saw that this author uh, specifically wrote parodies and satires. That made a lot more sense. But it's it's just an interesting take and look on it. And really, in some ways, it could could make an excellent novel. I'd love to read a Western Gothic that was serious. But it was simply an interesting little footnote. And part of Horror 101 here has been to uncover books. We try to cover all the classics and all the established novels, but I I am going to let myself be swayed by curiosity uh, now and again and pull up a book that maybe folks haven't heard of. And So it was very, very interesting to find this book, A Hawk Lion Monster by Richard Brodigan. And for this month's recommended reads, I have The Little Girl Who Lives Down the Lane, a novel by Lard Koenig. Now, I wanted to bring this into a full examination of the gothic tale. I felt like it was too much of a stretch, but it's definitely a book that I recommend because in it we have, again, a lot of those gothic sensibilities now taken, I'd almost like to call it a suburban gothic, maybe, you know, very similar to the Stepford Wives. But here's a story where we have a secret, there's a secret death, there's this house where this little girl moves into, and she's... Um, holding a secret and she may actually be I'll leave it up to readers to decide whether or not she's evil but there's this menacing presence the landlord's son is kind of a pedophile and um, we have this like 14 15 year old girl who's living on her own 13 year old who's living on her own because her father has died they move there and there's this veil of secrecy and she carries out this charade throughout the whole book pretending her father's alive because she's worried that her uh, her, uh, his, her her mother her father's ex-wife is going to come looking for her I and mean, she establishes a relationship with another a boy a 13 year old boy um, who's a little bit of he's he's handicapped a little bit of a limp you know but he's kind of exiled himself I wouldn't say there's any seduction there. There's, uh, but they, they do end up having sex. Okay, so there's a. It, it's definitely a recommended book. I said I, I didn't necessarily want to bring it in as an actual gothic tale, but it has those elements, and it's got probably one of the best endings that I've ever read. So for this month, I heartily recommend, on top of our reading, The Little Girl Who Lives Down the Lane. Again, a book that maybe you wouldn't necessarily come across when you're thinking of horror, but it's just got that nice, repressed... I mean, you come away from the book not knowing if you should like our main character at all. Rin, you sort of want to root for her but really, she's a murderer. But again, a highly recommended uh, extra book for this month's reading. So, we've come to a close of another month of Horror 101. Once again, I thank you for listening. Uh, if you get a chance, add us on Facebook, at Studying the Horror Genre on Facebook, Horror 101. Uh, again, I'm your host, Kevin Lucia. And until next month, keep reading, and we'll talk to you then. Ah, the collective psyche meets trout fishing in America. When I was a young man, Richard Browdigan was one of the heroes of my generation. The literate heroes, anyway. 
Thanks, Kevin. I'll not fuss over the biographic bits of Kevin's life this month. Instead, I recommend you go to Amazon and read the words collecting there that essay his book, Things Fall Through. Then I hope you'll buy a copy of Things Fall Through. Then I hope you read it, Things Fall Through, and then leave plaudits for, well, you know, on the Amazon page and return in awe next month to hear him again on Horror 101. That's Things Fall Through. Poetry. Tonight, we have a delightful piece by Mr. William Markley O'Neill. Bill O'Neill is the author of dark comedies, science fiction, fantasy, and most particularly, Tales of the Macabre. His horror story, Bob Bodie's Body Parts, was published in the November 2007 issue of Weird Tales magazine and was reprinted in Weird Tales, The 21st Century, Volume 1. A bit more about him in 2 minutes and 53 seconds. But for now, here is Scream Day. Today was a scream day. They proclaimed today a scream day. We haven't had a scream day in so long. All day, all the laws were thrown away, only one moral imperative to obey. Dedicate yourself to screaming all day long. Scream until your lungs and throat are gone. On scream days, I've always heard them say, everyone falls under screaming sway. Perverted barbarian hordes descend in swarms, the screaming riots I saw today, their screaming madness words can't convey. The degradation of the masses was in fine form. The people screamed all day like a shrieking storm. My God, my Lord, what a screeching, screaming day. What fun, what fear, what a funny, fabulous scream day. A day set aside for mayhem when silence is a joke. A night when shrieking mobs of murderers prowl, outside something is burning. The shrill winds carry the smoke, and all around the city the sirens howl. I screamed this morning when my coffee wasn't black. Later I shot a screaming relative in the back. After an afternoon orgy on the lawn, I threw back my head and screamed and screamed and screamed and screamed and screamed and screamed and screamed. I screamed at my sister and her slutty friends. I screamed at my mother's dinner guests. I screamed at strangers on the street like a banshee possessed. I'd say all in all, this scream day was a total success. Yes, all in all, this scream day was a screaming success. On scream day, the screaming legends say you can scream your very life away. Many screamers go to screamatoriums to keep on screaming. On Scream Day, the introspective pay, the quiet and demure learn to bark and bray. Scream days like today make me fall in love with screaming. With a scream this scream day, I pledged myself to screaming. With a shriek today, I vowed to keep on screaming. Yesterday was a scream day, a bloody pillaging scream day. 
Will they schedule another scream day before too long? It's a new day, not a scream day. I go on screaming anyway. I scream and scream and turn screaming into a song. I scream and scream and scream and scream and scream. I scream and scream even when screaming is wrong. I scream and scream and scream and scream. Thank you for that, Diane. And thank you for that, Bill. Hmm. Sonny, I have quiet little scream days nearly every day. They just sit down there inside where I shriek silently. Bill, Bill O'Neill, sums up his life as follows. I am single. I'm a Hoosier. I'm a writer. A bit more about him. Mr. O'Neill had a one-minute YouTube video that was produced through Weird Tales entitled, I Was a Teenage Beehive. You could go look at that. He had a dark poem, Delusions on the Rocks, and a short horror story, The Black and Blue Wasteland, published in 2012 in the January and December issues of Cover of Darkness from Sams.Publishing. A collection of 13 tales of terror written by Bill O'Neill are currently available on Amazon.com. The collection is entitled Fishing in Brains for an Eye with Teeth. Delightful. Bill lives in Anderson, Indiana, and has several cats. Mahler sends his best to Bats the Cat. Scream Day was spoken, screamed, and sung for us by Diane Severson Maury. Diane is an old, old chum from my days in the engine room at the Starship Sofa, and she's become the most recent old chum to have spent an evening in the actual physical nook here in Chicago. That was during her Halloween trek between home in Paris and the old home place in Wisconsin. In addition to being a narrator of poems and stories and the host, editor, and curator of Poetry Planet, heard on the Starship Sofa, she is a member of the Science Fiction Poetry Association, for which she ran the 2012 Poetry Contest, and is a staff blogger for Amazing Stories magazine. That's at AmazingStoriesMag.com, and she focuses on science fiction poetry. Diane is also an accomplished lyric soprano singer, specializing in early music with a focus on Baroque and medieval music. She's also a dedicated teacher of singing, a mother of a very young multilinguist by the name of Dante, and is married to her very own rocket scientist, named Magnus. You can touch base with her on her website, www.divadiane.eu. That'll be on our homepage at talestoterrify.com. Fiction. Ah, fiction. Tonight, I thought we'd settle down for a nice little post-apocalyptic tale. The tale in question is by Ms. Kim Lakin-Smith. You've heard Kim read here in the nook. 
On your 79th visit, she narrated Kate Gardner's The Scratch of an Old Record. Remember that? Before that, she undertook the reading of a tale by another Kim, Mr. Kim Newman, when she read, Is Anyone There? That was, oh dear, some 90-odd weeks ago. Tonight, we'll hear Antoinette Bergen reading Kim Lakin-Smith's Deluge. A few words about Kim. She is the author of Tourniquet, Tales from the Renegade City, Cyber Circus, and the young adult novella Queen Rat. Her short fantasy and science fiction stories have appeared in Black Static, Interzone, Celebration, Myth Understandings, Further Conflicts, Pandemonium, Stories of the Apocalypse, and others. Her story, Johnny and Emmy Lou Get Married, was shortlisted for the British Science Fiction Association Short Story Award in 2009. Kim has a background in performance and is a regular guest speaker at writing workshops and conventions. Here is Kim Lakin Smith. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Deluge. Deluge by Kim Lakin Smith. 
Waikatur. Some call it the city of the dead, everywhere reduced to this ash bone bowl. The wanderers have learned to inhabit the ancient coral beds, hollowing out a maze of tunnels and cave dwellings. Penthouses occupy the tallest stalks. Few things grow in Waikatur, except the biospore air plants that spider out from various crevices and the mulch engineered in the city's bowels, fresh crops grown off the decomposing lipids of the old. The smell never abates. It sticks inside your nostrils, and you can never pick it free. Which is how come I end up at Red Rim so often? The great clinker hole stinks from the ever-replenished furnaces which drive the city. Sweat melts off me as if I were made of wax, not flesh. But I find comfort there amongst the salamanders and the east coasters who don't mind the task of chipping off the outer frills of coral and feeding the furnaces. A city needs its feeders as much as its philosophers, my father used to say. I don't know what I think about that now. He's long since added his dead bones to the flames. I only know the city is about to fall and I have nowhere else to go. Funny then that now is the time I notice him. Dark, sweat-soaked skin, mouth like a bow saw, neck stretched by fat beadwork, hair tied high and falling in a black rope down his back. Eloise Jin, he says quiet as a boy in prayer class. The thwumper says you should get on home now. We're about to scrape the bellows. I glance over at the thwumper, who stands alongside the bellows cork and doffs his cap. The man smiles gingerly. West Coast thinkers like me are famous for our delicate temperaments. And what if I kick up a fuss and refuse to let them beat the soot from those leather lungs? I have the support of a wealthy family and the police protection that affords. Luckily, for this particular thwumper, I am not your average coaster. Not anymore. My gaze returns to the one who spoke. By your leave, I tell him. It feels as if feathers trace my belly as he stares. His pupils are so very black, unfathomable, but I catch a sneer at the corner of his mouth. He thinks my formality is sarcastic. I mean it, I tell him, collecting my journals and cradling them. And why would you mean it, he asks, eyes glittering. And he's right to ask. But to me, we are all wanderers, no matter which direction we swept in from. Night falls. I brew tea from the mint hocks in my window box, sit in the curve of coral alongside my studio window, and stare out at the stillness. He eases in next to me, skin like a furnace, and I remember the friction between us a short while ago. His name is Low Lim. I thought your home would be higher up the stacks. He nods towards the window. Beyond, the giant coral stalks are lit with the windows of the masses. Ours is a city composed of dead bodies, a weevilled necropolis. I live near the ground. My neighbors are weed stitchers, bone jewelers, and other artisans, mixed in with the richest East Coasters. Below me lie the burgeoning cellar homes of the mulch farmers, furnace workers, shit cakers, tunnelers, beast butchers, tanners, and fiber juicers. Above me are my kin, wealthy West Coasters. I imagine the smell of my father's bones inside the furnaces again. Are you trying to suggest you don't know the gossip about me? I know furnace workers are busy men, but even you have got to wonder why a thinker like me hangs out at Red Rim. Low shrugs. 
His naked shoulders are broad, muscles well-defined. Noise of the bellows is too great to talk over. Ah. I tuck myself up beneath his arm. You know my name, though. Eloise Jin, as in the Jin Delwa dynasty. My father was hanged for piracy a year ago. I tip my beaker towards the city and Amunai, the dead ocean bed which stretches beyond. He captained an ironclad. You've heard of them, I'm sure. The pirate ships that terrorize travelers to and from the city. I deliver the information cold. Low responds rather nicely. He pinches my chin and brings my lips to his. After the kiss, he stares at me intently. A pirate's daughter. I like that. Before my father's darker sideline was uncovered, I knew him as a thinker. I like that more. Uh-uh. Lo sits forward and gestures to the clutter interior below our coral bow, and have taken up the pirate's studies where he left off. I'm suddenly self-conscious of the mess of instruments and implements. My observatory strikes me as an organic mess in the otherwise desiccated environment. The orrery dominates the floor, a petrified tree of woven weed with mulch-ball planets set in constant motion. It creaks under the pressure. My thermometers are stacked in a corner like thin, slime-filled coffins. Journals gather dust in crevices. Mulch juice drugs sour in discarded bottles. Housekeeping bores me. Only science is sacrosanct. Thinker is just an academic title. I wear the robes because they give me license to use the thought halls. The police guards never check my credentials. If they did, they'd know I was disbarred for my father's crimes. The rest of the Delwa dynasty shipped out of Wakatur rather than face the shame. I wanted to finish my father's investigation. My face burns with enthusiasm. See the geoscales? The aneroid barometer? Those are my tools now I'm cast out. They let me see the future. Low nuzzles my neck, sparking the flesh. And what do you see, weather witch? It was a month previously that I attempted to speak with the High Council. My father had known my thinker skills were best suited to geology and meteorology, branches of science which had fallen out of favor in Wakatur, almost as if the city was bitter with the barren landscape it inhabited. Everyone knew the fame and fortune makers were mulch mechanics and phosphor synthesis. So intent were the thinkers of Wakatur on finding new ways to thrive in a dead ocean bed that no one cared to pay attention to the atmosphere creeping up. All the same, I had tried to make them listen. Donning my fake robes, I signed up for a speaker spot at the appointed hour and took to the grandstand in the council tower. The cracklered dome loomed overhead, filtering the blaze of the sun so that the room became a green underworld. Council members hunched on the surrounding benches like wrinkle-necked birds waiting on my death. Sukiya Zay called the speaker had assumed the identity of a bona fide thinker and friend. I was the better student. I didn't think she'd mind owning my findings if they saved our world from annihilation. Except, Waikatur is a tangled weed when it comes to its ruling dynasties. My father had always said I had his bloodline imprinted on my bones. But I had never seen the physical similarities. Someone did that day, though a plump west coaster with a face nibbled by gum rot, 
I was a minute into presenting my paper, the impending deluge on Wakatur and the Amalai Basin, warning of the low porosity of the volcanogenic ancient seabed. I detailed the fossilization of the millennia-old coral and how the weather was in flux. Precipitation was imminent. I told them in a whisper. Looking back, I suspect they would have thrown me out for fear-mongering and hocus-pocus, even if the man hadn't leapt up out of his seat, poked a finger like I was a charred corpse in their midst, and declared me a member of the disgraced Jin Delwar dynasty. I lost a decent set of robes that day, a friend in the form of Sukiyaze, too. I tell Lo this, nice and calm, as if it had happened to someone else. He listens, the creases intensifying in his forehead. I finish talking, and he climbs down from our lover's nook to walk between the instruments. I follow suit, lured in by the way his hand traces the thinned plant glass of the aneroid barometer. How his eye lingers on the clockwork guts of the geoscales where I weigh my rock samples. Best of all, he seems to like the milky vial suspended in the heart of the barometer case. The liquid has a life of its own and never tires. A witch's brew? He smiles at me but keeps the creases at his brow. Shark's oil from the liver of an ancient creature. Timeless technology. I rest my hands on my knees and peer at the small cyclone spiraling in the fluid. One of your father's plundered treasures? Lo joins me, hip to hip, staring at the antique bile that confirms what I already know. The storm will be here soon. So, Wagatur is to be lost to a watery grave? He tries for humor, but his voice catches. We are in a basin. The city's footings are not porous. I can't stop control my exasperation. Wakater is damned and so am I, because not one fool will listen. I will. Lo's black eastern eyes bore into my western green. I bet Cha Jin Delwar would have too. You know my father's first name? I'm not angry, more numbed by the knowledge he has known the truth about me all along. But then Lo says the most surprising thing. You do worse by his legacy then sideline the thinker half of your heritage and channel the pirate. An hour later, we're at the edge of the city known as the Skirts, a ground-level hovel for those East Coasters who can't even afford the safety of below. Here is where babes are picked off from their cradles by desert dogs, where the coral has corroded like rotten teeth in a dead man's jaw, and where pirates might hole up a while, drink mulch mead, and sing raucous songs. At least, that's how I've always imagined it. Except now, I'm actually walking through these cursed alleys. The last thing I can imagine is a good time sing-song. Any form of a good time, for that matter. It occurs to me that Wakater might not be meant to survive. In a world built quite literally on poverty and prejudice, there had to come a time of retribution, didn't there? I sense the elements themselves demanding it. We need to walk out into the night some, says Lo, and he knows I am frightened. My father's rogue side has not filtered through yet. Instead, I'm a lily-livered thinker. The dead ocean beyond the city is as alien to me as the eastern man at my side. Do we need weapons? I'm thinking of the West Coaster's myth of the spirit kraken which rises up from its rock bed to drain the living. It's not far, 
is all Lo says. He takes my hand as we step into the darkness. Amanai, the great seam of fossilized ocean crust where a sparse few air plants grow. And loneliness. But still men cross it. Wagons burdened with wares to sell in Wakater. Or when they decide to abandon the hot algae stench of below and strike out for a new nirvana, piled high with meager belongings. Either way, the pirates take advantage of the caravans. But standing here in the aching stillness of Amonai, it is hard to imagine ever encountering another living soul. The air tightens around me. The temperature runs black hot, and for the first time, I really feel the shift in the atmosphere. Everything's bunching on top of itself, amassing heat, and promising a supernova of reaction when the pressure becomes too much. We don't have long, I tell Lo. I think of the children back at the skirts, who have survived the desert dogs, only to die anyway. And I have to force the thought aside just to keep on walking. Lo stops abruptly, tugging me back by my hand. He folds me into his arms. I might have been held in the death grip of the atmosphere. He pulls away and stares. Daughter of Cha Jin Delwar, he smiles handsomely. Weather witch, then he whistles a long hard note. Thunder reverberates off the boundless distance. For a moment I think the sky is splitting, but then I see the ground in front of us shift, and a huge shelf of bedrock lift up on iron chains. Out from the lightless crevice emerges a vast metal ship, an ironclad. Its sides are bolted with solar scales. The wheels are three times the size of those belonging to the mulch tractors below. Headlamps blaze either side of a great tarnished grill. I'm reminded of ink plates of the spirit kraken in children's books. I squeeze up my eyes against the glare off the headlamps and look for the tentacles. But this is a man-made leviathan. A hatch opens in one side and a rectangle of light floods the bedrock. The engine sustains a low reverberating pulse. Warm, stale air feeds my lungs. Pipes weave about the walls like intestines. The mechanical mind of the ship lies before me. A huge bank of levers, dials, fine leather pump grips, valve racks, and a giant wheel molded from mulch fiber. No windows, only the fat tube of the periscope feeding up into the ceiling like ephemeral artery. The crew of the ship blend in. Cha was a good man. Didn't deserve to dance at the end of a rope. But that's a wakater for you. Police the poor, protect the rich. Eloise has read a change in the skies. Lo nods at me. Cha's daughter says Wakater is going under, and neither the police nor the High Council will listen to her. But I've assured her that pirates have keener hearing. The crew move out from the walls, expressions pitched between fear and menace. I'm coated in sweat. For the first time since I interpreted the data and drew my ominous conclusion, I'm among folk who really want to hear what I've got to say. So I lay it out for these strange, savage men and women who knew the side of my father he hid so well. I borrowed charcoal and papyrus and sketched the nature of the ocean bedrock, the colossal basin of Amonai, the tunneling city of Wakater, where even air struggles to pass through. And here comes the crux of it, the point at which the pirates knock elbows and laugh me out into the desert. It's going to rain, 
Rain hard. Rain like the world is going to end. No one laughs or even smiles. Instead, all eyes stay on me. Captain rounds on his crew. Who has family in the skirts or below? Two East Coasters stand forward of the rest. Romlin, Niji, go. Be back here within the hour. We'll sail over Amanai and get as far as we can before the storm breaks. Lo nudges me. Is that enough action for you? I can't begin to guess. I drag a hand over my face, feeling the familiar angles of a Delwar. In part, I desperately want to be right about the downpour over Wakatur, to be proven a true thinker. But another part of me is acutely aware that in being right, I am condemning thousands to death by drowning. What can I do, though? Only this, I tell myself, watching the two men disappear out the hatch. But even as they go, the room falls silent. A few dark drops spatter the griddled floor near the open hatch. We wait one hour, hollers the captain after the men. Kai Kekko served on my father's ship for 15 years, it turns out. Like Lowe, the captain wears his hair in a high tail, a style not exclusive to, but favored by Eastern mystic men. That the captain and his nature boys should be willing to accept my frantic science is eye-opening. I can't help wondering if these pirates are the true thinkers and spiritualists. Certainly Lowe has me enchanted. He stands, shoulder to shoulder with me, and the heat radiating off him is volcanic. I'm amazed at how reassured I feel in his company. And again, I question the morality of Wakater's ruling elite versus the homely intelligence of the man at my side. But this is not the time for soul-searching. It is the time for action. Kai Kekko has his face to the periscope. His crew are rabid in their testing the integrity of the solar scales, both inside and out. Whenever a crew member returns from the outside, they're soaked through to the skin, eyes wild as the weather. What help can I be? I ask Kaikeko. Captain pulls his face away from the periscope. What help can you be? He snorts before ordering Low to leave off the mollycoddling. Cha's daughter isn't the sort to crumple. Any girl who can put herself before the self-same high council responsible for hanging her father has guts as ironclad as this vessel. Now you take the wheel and get ready to steer my ship true. She's never been tested in water before, so who knows if we'll keep afloat or sink like the sinners we are. Low pulls away from me, and it's tough on us both, like separating magnets. As Low takes the wheel, Kai Kekko stares at me expectantly. I can navigate by the stars. I can anticipate wind patterns. She's a weather witch, interrupts Low, this time without a trace of a smile. Seemingly, this information means something to the crew. They nod at me in acknowledgement, and their anxiety softens. Every ship needs one, says the captain. Maybe our instruments can do everything you can, but a storm as mighty as that you are predicting can play havoc with the man-made. Always best to have a navigator on board who feels the way of things in her bones. I want to argue, insist that I am a scientist and my observations are reliant on man-made instruments, not just hunches. But Lo looks at me and I see such genuine belief in his black eyes that I keep quiet.
The same whistle Lowe had used earlier echoes around the bridge, piped in from the howling wilds outside. Romlin and Niji, open the hatch, demands the captain. Lowe revolves a spoked wheel to unbutton the hatch. A window onto the night opens in the wall. The rain falls beyond like drops of mercury. The ship pitches sideways, the water collecting up under the wheels and making purchase difficult on the smooth rock face. The pirates gather at the hatch, hold out hands, and whisk the families inside. Last come Romlin and Niji, shouting something unintelligible about eyes in the desert. I catch a sense of dread among the crew. Theirs is a sudden call to action. Low takes to the ship's wheel. Kai Kekko molds his face to the periscope while shouting, Hi there, draw anchor, dip the headlamps, man the coke cannons. And the crew slot into place about the deck, hands on lock switches, eyes on dials. Romlin and Niji's wives shoo their broods off into the quarters to the back end of the ship. And I'm left alone in the center of the deck, awkward and afraid. When the bullets come, they slam against the scaled craft with force. I hear the great wheels revolve against the slick ground and the high keen of whirring gears. No good, Kai. The water's risen past the keel. Wheels are out of action, calls a shipmate. Keep them turning long as you can. Momentum's got to help some, I answer. The outburst takes me aback as much as the captain, but he put his face back to the periscope side and mutters softly, I... Again, the bullets ricochet off the ironclad's exterior, and I press my back into the wall, finding hollows fitted there for the purpose. The ship rocks, pitches, and is set afloat. Police cruiser, a riot wagon, which may just stand a chance of weathering it out here, says Kai Kekko. Eloise Jin Delwar, help the gunman with the coke cannons. I suspect you'll prove a natural shot. Beyond the bridge... The hull is an echoing iron pit. The coke cannons are huge. Rear ends steaming and giving off an unmistakable red hue. Pirates work the hand cranks alongside a series of circular hatches in one wall. The hatches spiral open and each cannon is shunted forward on greased tracks. Stoker high, cries one operator to two others. Coke shovelers judging by how they don't stop to argue but take up the long-handed dip spades and attack the overflowing coke hole at the far end of the hull. The operators drag back narrow flaps in the sides of the cannons, revealing embers that crackle in readiness. It strikes me suddenly that I've been so wrapped up in proving my science that I haven't stopped to think about how much danger I am in right now. But then I laugh hysterically, causing the crew manning the guns to turn and stare. I'm in an ironclad, being shot at by desert police, and it's all so irrelevant next to the cataclysmic storm. The pirates eye each other. A red-tanned woman, with rings in both nostrils, strides over, her footing a little uneven as the ship rocks. Daughter of Cha, let me tell you this much in case you're harboring a few feathers of thinker softness on you yet. You can fight a lifetime against the big men in their ivory towers. But when Mother Moon decides to unleash her deluge, it won't matter if you're highbrow western or eastern scum. All will go the same way. The woman holds up a thumb and directs it down. Her black eyes pinch. But maybe we stand a chance in our iron box. First, though, 
We've got to take out the bastard police. I see then how completely these dangerous men and women believe me. I'm Cha's daughter. The least I can is apply my bookish intelligence to proving a quick study. I nod, and the woman rocks with the motion of the ship, like a scare night bobbing thing. Finally, she turns and strides back over to her cannon. The room shakes with the tremendous reverb off the glowing guns. I put my hands to my ears. Smoke gnaws my lungs. I taste sweat at my upper lip. Yanking open the coke flap of my cannon, I take a face full of blowback off the red hot coals. Fully stoked, shouts my neighbor before discharging his own cannon in a great crush of noise. A long, thin telescope protrudes from the wall. I try to go with the rolling motion of the ship, lean in, and look through the eyepiece. My father once spent the night on the balustrade circumnavigating one of the highest academic institutions in Wakatur, highest by reputation and location. His story went that, as a young apprentice, he had been challenged by his mentor to sit out in one of the worst dust storms to hit the city, the aim being to learn to tune out his surroundings, no matter how violent, and solve a series of geothematic posers. Tucked up in his robes, on that roaring pinnacle, a mulch fiber sack worn over his head and shoulders, my father couldn't resist peeping out at the grayed whirlpool of Amonai. The dust stung his eyes. The taste of it soured the corners of his mouth, but for some reason, he couldn't stop looking at something way off in the distance. A wavering form with tentacular limbs that oozed and stretched. Eye to the telescope, I find myself understanding how easy it would be to envision the spirit kraken in the misty blue-black beyond the ship. But while my father had enjoyed the excuse of youth and taken flight back below, I can enjoy no such relief. And something is materializing through the storm. Two vast silver wings arching out and down from the egg sack of a small cabin. The police cruiser has adapted to the aquatic conditions very well. Reflections off its questing headlamp dance in the sky like streaking bioluminescence. Gobs of flaming coke graze the wings now and then, but mostly the pirate's aim is ineffectual. The cruiser, meanwhile, is equipped with state-of-the-art, algaloid-fueled engines, the lightest, toughened mulch fiber bodywork, and a magna bond harpoon hooked up over one wing. Apparently, I'm not the only one to spot the harpoon. A cry goes up from the woman with the ringed nose and the rushes on to stoke the cannons. Take your shot, the woman tells me, and she's right. I need to because I can see the cruiser maneuvering in the water in order to aim the harpoon. I'm not sure how much engine power is required to pull clear of a magna bond strike, but I suspect the ironclad is too old and ugly to attempt it. I put my hand on the cannon trigger, a thick iron lever bandaged in mulch wool, and watch through the telescope. The ship around me bucks and dips. I tap into its rhythm, tunnel my gaze to the harpoon, and fire. The cannon kicks back, knocking me to the ground and winding me. Pain erupts at my breastbone, leaving me choking for breath. The pirates pay no attention to my war wounds. They come at me through the smog like ghosts in the gut of the ironclad. 
she's got her father's aim, they tell one another, picking me up and dusting me down. I press my eye to the telescope sight. It should pain me to see the harpoon rig in flames. Haven't I just attacked a police cruiser while in the company of a band of itinerant East Coast savages? What has happened to the girl in love with rocks and solitude? Washed away, I realize, as the flaming mess of the harpoon seesaws at the cruiser's bow, prompting the craft to list. The ironclad originally belonged to a spice merchant, so the captain informs me while staring into his periscope, barking instructions to his crew. Water played no part in the craft's design, only the safe transport of the fine spice powders in the hull, now occupied by the sunset-colored Coke cannons. Will the ship hold up? I ask stupidly, knowing this is the very question on everyone's lips. But Lowe interrupts. The engine is less resistant to water log. I join the pirates in soaking up the water that feeds in at the ship's breastplates, small dribbles that form an ever-growing pool at our feet. The sopping rags we used are passed down the line to where one man reaches out of a cannon portal and squeezes them off in the rain. I hear the engine choke and splitter in the howls of the ironclad, and I see low, working the vast bank of levers and switches in between tugs on the ship's wheel. I'm losing her, he cries. All around us, we feel the ship shudder as the engine struggles against the flow of water. With one last pull of muscle, that heart organ fails. The interior of the ironclad dims. Only two wall lamps pulse weakly. The ship moans and roils. Rain beats against the iron skin like thousands of hammering fists. How many times did my father spy a police cruiser in the distance and power down, waiting out the minutes in the hot tin can of his ironclad? Did the silence roar in his ears like the violence of the storm, now assaulting Kai Kekko's vessel? I'll man her by hand, Lo tells the captain. It takes me a moment to process the weight of what he's saying. Another wheel exists, up top, inside a bolt-on cabin that is open to the elements. If Lowe can hole up inside, he can attempt to steer us to safety. But how are you going to see anything out there? asks a crew member, voicing the thought we all share, which is when Lowe's beautiful, oceanic eyes turn on me. I need a weather witch. If hands can betray a heavy heart, so it is with the captain's. He revolves the spoked wheel at one side of the roof hatch in slow, steady movements. The hatch unseals with a thisk of releasing air. It is as if we've opened the lid of some ancient box, and in doing so, unleashed all of the abominations of the underworld. The wind screams above us. Rain lashes in at the crack. Mother Moon keep you safe, says the captain, patting our shoulders. Then he thrusts the hatch aside, and Lo and I climb out. The weather hits me straight in the gut. My cheeks sting with the violence of the rain. As Kai Kekko's strong brown hand forces the hatch shut, I fight to stay upright. The tug on my wrist reminds me that Lo has insisted on tethering me to him by a length of mulch rope, long enough to give him free rein to work the new ship's wheel, short enough to keep us together, if one or both get swept overboard. The cabin is just big enough for the two of us. While it has a roof, all four sides are open to provide a panoramic view. The best thing about our environment 
is that the water drains straight out of the cabin and over the sides of the ironclad. Unfortunately, we faced the constant danger of losing our footing and draining away with it. I pressed my back into the molded curve of one of the corner struts. Low battles to hoist the lock levers and activate the wheel, a huge circle of iron with winged spokes, and which revolves every which way thanks to its reactive fixtures. The stock on which it is mounted bends and twists. The winged spokes billow out or deflate, depending on which way low powers the wheel. Even through the maelstrom, I see the swell of Lowe's muscles, as if he is as much a part of the movement of the storm as the wind and the rain. Help me work our way clear of Wakatur, he calls. At first, that doesn't make sense. Lowe and I walked out into Amani in order to find the pirates, leaving the city behind. But I force myself to move and, holding tight to the strut, peer out past the ship. Then I see the truth of it. Kai Keko's ironclad has been washed in close to the city, or at least Wakatur once was. Bank right, I tell Lo, feeling the prickle of the north wind across my face and realizing he can use the thrust to feed the wings of the wheel. The water has risen over red rim and the skirts. Steam billows off the roiling surface. I imagine the furnaces below gasping against the flood. Waves strike the corralled city walls like boulders. Bodies tumble in the froth. Men, women, children. East coasters drowning in their own suffering. The ironclad sails over the top of the hovels, now buried far below. I can't help thinking we're sailing over a mass grave. Overhead, the sky is swollen with cloud. It scares me to watch the way it folds out from itself and amasses. I force the fear below my ribs. Guide us between the Westerners' towers, I tell Lo. They'll shelter us from the worst of it. Can it get worse? yells back Lo. And oh yes, it can. I see countless tiny twisters spiraling overhead. I think about the shark oil's ancient weather warning, and I read the sky as clearly as the contents of that vial. Take us in as carefully as you can. It's a ridiculous request. The huge waves carry the ironclad in between the coral towers on a violent current. I brace myself against the strut at my back as the ship impacts on the ancient walls. Low curses, water pouring off him as he works. I read the currents, taste the changes in wind direction, and conjure up a route between those spindled rocks. The world is rising up to meet the sky, and it's difficult to know where one begins and the other ends anymore. Wave after wave smashes up against the vessel. Once I slip and go careering hard off the cabin's edge, Lowe drags me back up, the black depths of his eyes fossilized. The terror of it chokes my lungs. My eyes feel full of silt. I recover to see the first purples of dawn breaking over the new ocean. Sailing through the city's coral crown, I see towers threatening to collapse, their numerous windows fibrillating with life. It takes me a moment to realize I'm seeing people crammed into those tiny spaces. I catch their cries on the wind, the noise drifting in and out on its own tide. As Lowe guides us through the steaming whirlpool, I stare up at the windows full of thinkers in their expensive robes. Below will be flooded entirely by now the violent flow banking up inside the sealed city and forcing its way inside the towers. 
many windows are already transformed into waterfalls. From beneath us comes the creak of splintering coral. Wakater looms overhead, a thrashing beast in its death throes. It strikes me, then, that the spirit kraken has always been the city. Gobs of flaming mulchweed float below like thousands of eyes, dead muddy up the water. The towers of learning crumple in. My father was considered one of the foremost thinkers of his time. From what I've heard on board Kai Keiko's ironclad, Cha was an even finer pirate. His bones went into fueling Wakater, but his true legacy lies in the free thinkers who outlived the city and who set sail now for a new nirvana. Wanderers we may be, but isn't it better to live unanchored than sacrifice one's life to a city of the dead? This much I understand as the waters settle. Lowe gathers up the length of mulch rope, and I go to him. The sky breaks free of cloud cover, and the world turns gold. Tonight's story, Deluge, reflects a dominant theme that seems to appear in Kim's short fiction in that it features a lone warrior in an apocalyptic setting. This story is from the 2011 anthology Pandemonium, Tales of the Apocalypse. And thank you for sharing it with us, Kim. Deluge was read for us tonight by Ms. Antoinette Bergen. Of herself, Antoinette says she is twisted, dark, sarcastic, pessimistic, weird, demented. Well, I don't know. She sounds very nice. Antoinette is the author of Bedtime Stories for Children You Hate. I love that title. She's been known to mail packages of lime jello to people she deems worthy, and she can be found on Twitter as at Nettie underscore Bergen. And that will be on our homepage at TalesToTerrify.com. And she probably won't harm you if you follow her. And by the way, Nettie, I still await my packet of jello. Well, I suspect I am not worthy. Ah, ah well. And ah, uh, yes. One more thing before the inevitable. Last week, I did an interview for Mark Slade's new publication, Nightmare Illustrated Magazine. Nightmare Illustrated is a new horror magazine. Mark says what he hopes to achieve with it is the same blend of intelligent horror and mindless violence with a wink and a smile, where William M. Gaines left off with his EC titles, Mark says the idea for Nightmare Illustrated came from reading one of Gaines' efforts he called Hictofiction. You'll have to look that up to see what it is. It's, it's interesting. Nightmare Illustrated magazine is available through Lulu, and you can follow it on Twitter. Nightmare Illustrate is the handle. And sometime soon, you'll be able to read more than you ever dreamed you'd know about yours truly here in the nook in Nightmare Illustrated Magazine. 
And that children of the night will be that for the evening. Be upstanding, wrap yourselves, then be off with you. A pleasure it was to have you here tonight. You'll be back next week, yes? For show 99, yes? What's on tap? Well, you'll have to wait and see. We'll have a time, though. And tonight, tonight have a pleasant walk home in the fall dark. You can shake off the nerves. The apocalypse, more than likely, will not be tonight. The sky is dark, though. Clouds, yes. No moon, anyway. And close to the lake, though we are. We've not had a seish wave, well, for quite some time. June 1954, I believe it was. One is due, possibly. Overdue, some might think. Oh, what's a seish wave? Well, there are maths and models that explain them, but from the standpoint of the observer, the the victim, a seish wave is just a sudden flow of water, an eternally rising tide from away across the lake, a sudden rise that sweeps in and overwhelms then... Uh, well, no worries. Overdue it may be, but you'll make it home tonight. And a golden sky, well... Well, there are comets and rumors of comets, but they're all above the clouds tonight. But no, you'll make it home. Home to your dark and lonely staircase, to your rooms, to your bed, to the sleep that beckons, and to the eternal promise of pleasant dreams. Hmm? This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to... How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 
podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. 